This is it. This is our final Sunday together. Dang. Oh, fans. Um, I paid them. Uh, we, we were in the process of moving. I, you remember I told you this? If you were here week one, I told you we were moving from our first week to this week. So yesterday I installed a washer. I installed a dryer. We painted. I, I can't even say really that I installed a washer and dryer as much as I wrestled with all the tubes that are behind the dryer. That's quite the wrestling match. Uh, Jesus had grace on my life. But somewhere in the process of coming from San Diego to Mission Viejo, I packed the stuff that I was using to preach every single week, including the Bible that I was using, and it went into a box. And I cannot find that Bible in that box in my garage now. So I came with a backup Bible, <laughs> potentially the world's smallest Bible. This is, my bi- this is my wife's college Bible, and you can see it's weathered really well, but I failed to realize when I grabbed it this morning that it's probably got a world record set for the smallest font. Do you see how that? No, you can't see that because it's so small. So if you see me suffering here like this, I'm going to, I'm using the slides on that back monitor back there for the back monitor guy all day. I've been telling him, if you fail me, this is going to go really bad. So no pressure, but all the pressure on you, period. Okay. Now that that's out of the way, I'm glad we're here. If you guys were here the last two weeks, I want to catch you up to speed. My name is Mingo. That's right. So many people are like, hey, Django. I'm like, no, my name's not Django. <laughs> my name is Mingo. Uh, it's short for Domingo. And last week, we, last week we talked about, well, two weeks ago, we talked about what it means to follow Jesus really basically. Coming off of Easter, I thought, how great would it be to just get a a basic look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we talked about how he calls us to follow him. And we we don't necessarily need to know what that all entails because it is a journey. You start to learn more about it. But he does want you to be all in about following him. So we talked about when we decide to follow him, how his promise is to make us become. I don't know if you remember that, but the promise was, I will make you become. And we talked about wanting to be better husbands and wives and family members in a community together to become a better version of ourselves that we know is out there. And Jesus is the one that makes us become that. And then we talked about the costs of that becoming, how he associated it with commercial fishermen. And he said, if if you'd be willing to put in as much as you do here into our relationship with one another, that the payout could be unbelievable. The payout could change the trajectory for so many people's lives. They would literally exit hell. They would, they would be reconciled back to their, their maker. And that would be our journey together. Then week two, we talked right out of that, three chapters ahead of the book of Mark, how Jesus took 12 into a storm un unchartably to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and on that other side were not people that neither the disciples nor Jesus had spent much time with. They were, they were a pagan people. They worshipped multiple gods. They had no context of Jesus. They had no clue what he had to offer or who he was really beyond just the murmuring of the, the rumors of Jesus. How on the way to the other side, that storm and that uncertainty really exposed in the 12 uh, a big 
chunk of fear and how sometimes when we, we're not certain where we're headed to or the reason why things are happening in our lives, sometimes the flinch gut reaction is fear. And Jesus asks us, why would you grab fear when I'm in the boat with you? You remember that? And how challenging it is, humanity, how, how human we are when things go wrong, we, we want to grab something. We always grab fear instead of Jesus. And Jesus says, man, it's, it's an opportunity for your faith to grow. And I want your faith to, did anybody go back to their house and look in their refrigerator at their mustard? Anybody do that? Anybody look at your mustard? Failure. You failed. Yeah, I, I, was, I saw my mustard again and I was like, Jesus, give me mustard seeds. So uh, we talked about the mustard seed, how your faith could be an, an amazing display of God's power. And we finished them coming to the other side, and that's where we're going to pick up. It's Mark chapter 5. We're not going to skip a verse. We left with them saying, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It was a massive storm, a life-threatening storm. And in chapter 5, we arrive at the purpose by which Jesus was headed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. If you're in any other narrative, if you're in uh, Matthew or any of the other Gospels, there's another word. It's the Gadarene, but it's the Gerasenes in the book of Mark. And it says, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. What's interesting is a couple of things. That word, the, the garrisons, the, the region is named, it's interesting, it's got a, it's got a definition. It, it means there's a reward at the end. So Jesus is taking them to the other side, and I'm I'm not assuming that they made the name after this had happened, but it was identified as that. So there's a story to be told in Jesus arriving at the other side, and its promise is that there's a reward at the end. But I'm telling you, this is not a gift you want to open at face value. See, coming off of a life-threatening storm, the boat, it washes up into the shore, and as soon as the bow hits the sand, like a movie, Jesus' foot comes, that was not as epic as I thought it was going to be, uh, Jesus's foot comes out of the boat. Jesus probably didn't step. He was probably like in and out, right? That's how Jesus I love, right? I imagine that. So he gets out of the boat and running at him full speed is what the Bible paints a picture of an insanely broken man. Somebody who Early in his years, belonged to a community. Something happened by way of either him exposing himself to it or something, something attack, attaching itself to him. And it becomes a downward spiral where his immediate family can no longer manage the brokenness that he's experiencing, that the the community that he lives in is no longer able to manage the brokenness that this guy is dealing with. His entire city is now dealing with the issue of one, and they're, 
their final thought is finally, let's just get them out of town, out of the house, out of the community. Let's get them over to the cemetery and let's shackle them down and maybe we can have life as we all want it to be. Nice, mellow, smooth. We'll just let him deal with what he's dealing with over there. That is the position we find this guy in. And as Jesus shows up on his beachfront property, is the worst beachfront property you can have. It's all it's cemeteries. Don't buy beachfront cemetery property. Um, as Jesus shows up on the shoreline, what we see is a display that goes beyond what we studied last week. Last week we studied the commanding power that Jesus has over all physical things. But this morning I want to press into chapter 5 because it's going to show us how Jesus has commanding power over all spiritual internal things that we wrestle with. And in a room this size, I'm certain that there are more people wrestling with things internally. Actually, I remember the, the, the finale of last week's service and the question got asked, are you in a storm right now? And I remember several people's hands going up, and I just thought to myself, we're probably unbeknownst to each other, even the person sitting next to you, wrestling with something way beyond you. And so there should be some hope that comes from this, some certainty in the midst of uncertainty, and we're going to unpack how Jesus approaches it. It says in verse 5, that night and day among the tombs on the mountainside, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. It's a, it's a look into the humanity of somebody who's probably been discounted from his humanity, right? I mean, with, with being such a nuisance, people probably aren't giving him much of a benefit of the doubt, but I love that in verse five, the, the author sees the way Jesus sees, and it tells him that that he's been crying out, and more so that he's been bruising himself. In another translation, NIV says that he cut himself with stones. I think that it's probably one of the first, if not the very first, account of cutting that we see in Scripture. And for a younger generation, this is a very relevant topic because the angst and the turmoil that we deal with internally, a lot of times for people that don't have hope in Jesus, it's expressed by some way of, of release, by a physical pain. At least we can... Tie it to a physical pain. And so we see in Scripture somebody wrestling with the exact same thing that our generation at hand is dealing with. So it's, a, it's, a, it's staggering to me how relevant this is about to become. It says, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. That word adjure means to beg. I beg you, God, do not torment me. It's a crazy picture. I imagine the back doors of this church flinging open. And if there was some hope or revelation of Jesus in the flesh here that you'd imagine somebody so broken and so marginalized, doesn't look or, or talk or smell or, or even has any, any possible connection to the way you and I are. They is a different kind on another level of brokenness. Crashing through that door, running to the front and saying, why are you tormenting me? And I don't have to be shackled and living in a cemetery to, to confess to you this morning that I, I wrestle with that question sometimes. God, why 
Does it seem like you're, it's like you're torturing me. I'm praying for these things and I I prayed with a woman and I talked to the woman after service last week and she said, I don't know why this has happened in my life and I feel so lost not knowing the answer to it. Sometimes it feels like torture. Have you ever been there? And you're told that there's a God that loves you and you're told that there's a God that knows everything, who's all powerful and yet I think that I identify more with a guy who's running at Jesus Naked, this guy has no clothes on. We'll find out that later. Uh, And he's just asking God, why is it so hard right now? And Jesus and all his ability and all his foresight and all his knowledge and all his perspective could have unpacked to this guy all of the cosmos in one answer. But I love his response. It says that Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? What's your name? It seems like, a, and without disrespect, it seems like a dumb question to me in light of the entire scenario. Demon-possessed man running at you. You just came out of a storm that almost killed you and all your, all your mates, and now you show up on the shore. It is chaotic. If I'm in the back of the boat with Jesus, I'm going, Jesus, could you, lead, could you get to the point? Because I really think this might be more detrimental to us than we see. And then I heard a preacher say something really amazing one time. I, said, I heard him say, Jesus sometimes asks dumb questions because he's dealing with dumb people. <laughs> Jesus sometimes asks really dumb questions because he's dealing with really dumb people. And, you know, you, you look at that and you go, well, I don't know if that's a dumb question. There are no stupid questions, Bingo. And I'll say this. Yesterday, I was running around my house with my four-year-old son, Bravery. We, we're in our new place, so there's, there's, it's a new format on the floor. There's furniture that's in different places in our house than he's used to. He's got all the same old toys, but we were running, having a, an amazing, epic Nerf battle. And as he was rounding the dining room on a new table that sits a little low, he didn't have a shirt on. He was running because we had just gotten out of the pool that we were in. He nicked the side right in that tender, uh, right there on the corner of this table. And you know the like kind of hit when you're running that it doesn't bleed, but there's just a little bit of blood. You know that one? It's like, that ah, just cut me open. It feels better, right? It's like the skin swelled and it scratched and you saw a big bump come to the surface in the mark of a line. And I remember he just folded over and he's like, dad, like just crying. I want mom. I was like, I'm nurturing too. And from my vantage point, I know all the answers. I know where he messed up. I know exactly what he could have done to be better. I could have been like, well, bravery, here's the deal. You were running too fast. You had socks on. It's a hardwood floor. We're not in carpet anymore, buddy. And clearly, when you're running, if you look to your left, you can see the table. It's about that height. And if you go crashing into it, of course it's going to hurt. So suck it up. <laughs> but no, you know what I do as a father? I go like this. Ah, buddy, what happened? A stupid question. I know exactly what happened. Buddy, did, what happened? The table bit me, right? Whatever. <laughs> and I go look at the table and I go, hey, 
You don't get to hang out here anymore. And I move it back, right? And then I go back and I go, what should we do? And he's like, I think I need a Ninja Turtle Band-Aid. And I go, we're going to put five on it, right? And I just go, whoop, 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 all the way across the side. I'm like, it's going to hurt when it comes off, right? But he's like, I go, is it better now? And he goes, yeah, can you pray for me? Kids are always praying, right? I go, yeah, of course I can pray for you. Does it feel better now? Stupid questions, but for good purpose, right? I want my kid to know that I care about him. That I want him to know that I know everything about him. But that's, I think that's the approach that Jesus gives us here. Your world is sinking. You are unbelievably tormented. There are no answers in the last decade of what you've been wrestling with. You know what Jesus comes to the table with? The answers. But you know what he starts with? Why don't you start with your name? Let's start there. Let's start personally. Because I've heard what it is that's driving you nuts. I've heard what it is that's getting you down. I hear all the problems that you're bringing to the table. And I want to address those. But I want to know you. I want you to know that I want to know you. And so we get an incredibly simple question from a very complex Savior for the sake of us knowing that he wants to know you. And the response is, the response is actually pretty intense. What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Not the friendly neighbor you want to meet, right, when you move into a new neighborhood. And he begged him earnestly not to send, out, not to send them out of the country. And I don't get this. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why Jesus wouldn't have just taken everything that was consuming this person and sent it right back to the place that it came from, literally taking it back to hell. But... Jesus is in a negotiation all of a sudden with what it is that's ailing, what's tormenting this guy. And it says, Now a great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. Verse 13, So he gave them permission. Probably one of the most significant verses in Scripture that you can hold to when it comes to the spiritual, when it comes to the spiritual battles that you face. Jesus has commanding power over both physical and, more importantly, the spiritual things that you wrestle with. You have unknown questions in your life. You're dealing with things that you don't have answers to. I'm telling you this. Jesus has commanding power over those things. So much, in fact, that the, the idea that your prayers have gone unanswered or that Jesus isn't dealing with it or he's not, he doesn't see it, We imagine that he's in like a spiritual wrestling match, hoping that he's going to win. And the fact of the matter is, verse 13 tells us that they they beg him and Jesus gives evil permission to go. The word that that he uses for for the, the command to go, it means that he stops it in its tracks. That's what happens when evil meets Jesus. When darkness gets exposed to light, it is stopped in its tracks. It's the power of Jesus on display. And I don't know what it looked like, but it says the unclean spirits came out and it entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. That is the worst day at the beach ever. 
If you're not in this guy's party or if you're not in Jesus' party, you've got a blanket out there. Yay, it's sunny, Santa Ana's. Boom, 2,000 pigs go belly up right in the shorefront where you're hanging out. Bad day at the beach. Pay the extra money, drive to the nicer beach. I couldn't imagine. I was trying to wrap my brain around it this morning. I was thinking 2,000 of anything would be overwhelming. Like 2,000 pigeons. I, I, would, I would be like, we are, in a, we are in a scary movie right now. There's 2,000 pigeons circling. Get me out of here. Take me to Chick-fil-A, right? 2,000 pigs is like every seat in this auditorium being filled with a pig sitting on a pig's lap. That's the number of pigs. And just, feel, just look. That many pigs come crashing down. That's the number of problems, the number of plagues, the number of things in, just infested in one person. And I can't imagine you having, with the life that God has allowed you to live, if you went home and you wrote down the problems that you're bringing to the table for Jesus to deal with, I'd be surprised if you could get to 2,000. But Jesus, on this radical display of his power, And his grace says, if it's 2,000, I'll deal with it. What's crazy is that he spends 2,000 pigs on one person. And this is why it's crazy, because the backlash is unbelievable. It says, the herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man the one who had the legion sitting there clothed, I underline that because I thought it was funny because that means he was butt naked when they found him. <laughs> clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs and they begged Jesus to depart from their region. Heck yeah, I would. I'd beg him to go too. That's too crazy for me. And it, <laughs> I love that Jesus does his deal. The 12 are with him. And I can just imagine the conversation between the 12 and they go like, I did not sign up for this. I did not expect that. And am I gonna have to give that guy my pants? And somebody's like, you're the new one. And you're like. And he's clothed. I love it. It's like all of a sudden it's well, right? And that guy Tormented as can be, the Bible says, is at peace in his right mind with your pants on. And the herdsmen go and they come back and the scene is probably more chaotic than you and I could ever imagine in our brains. And the only thing they can come to the grips with is that Jesus has to go. You've got to go, Jesus, because this is too intense for me. And I wonder if sometimes in our life, the prayer that we have for Jesus to do the miraculous work, the hard thing, the unknown thing to us, to deliver us from storm to security, I wonder if when he delivers, if it's actually too much for us to handle. And so he unpacks it one miracle at a time. Because if he was to unpack it all, we'd be like, Jesus, you gotta go. I don't think I can handle you. I don't think I can handle as big and powerful and miraculous as you are. I think I would have been like these guys. The ones who were like, Jesus, that was awesome. I don't know if it was worth it. 
Because if, if 2,000 pigs, if each pig was a dollar, it's a, it's a pretty cheap pig, it would cost me $2,000 as an investor for one guy's life. And if you told me today that $2,000 would change somebody's life in the parking lot, I don't know that I'd be, I don't know that I would write that check. I'll just be totally honest with you. For missions, yeah, oh, you're ready. Ooh, I see your bag's packed. Mm, yeah, you're ready. I can get behind that. But what we see in scripture here is the guy that you would not bet the farm on. You see a guy who, judging, if you judged a book by its cover, it's the worst read ever. It's, we gave you money, and we paid your rent, and we, we spent extra time with you, and we, we, gave you, we gave you extra attention and extra help, and what did you do with it? You squandered it. You, you got wrapped up in something that we told you was going to be a bad thing, and you decided to do it anyways, and then it consumed you, and once it consumed you, you couldn't get out of it, and then you were ashamed to be around, and we wanted you back at the family meals, but we couldn't deal with the issues that you had adopted since you'd last been with us. And Jesus says, that kind of mess, that kind of person, that kind of son, that kind of brother, that kind of sister, that kind of roommate, or that kind of classmate, or the person that you know is not great. Jesus says, that's the one I'm going to bet my money on. And why? Why, Jesus, would you bet on that? Because if it was me, if I had $2,000 to write a medical bill to if one of your candidates for your eldership had come and said, oh, I broke my leg, I, right? If he did that, I'd go, it would make sense that Jesus would heal that guy because what he's gonna bring to the table is it's gonna be worth it, right? And I always think to myself, okay, I'm gonna imagine myself in this narrative. Who am I gonna be, right? Am I, am I the guy's in the boat and I'm waiting to watch Jesus and I'm like, whoa, that guy's sketchy. I don't want to deal with that. I'll stay in the boat. Am I, am I the guy with the pigs who Jesus may want to get a hold of my resources to set somebody else free, and then i got to wrestle with that? Am I a pig? I pray I'm not a pig. And I always miss this one in this narrative, but I'll tell you this. You and I cannot place ourselves in any of the people's shoes other than the most broken person being talked about in any chapter, period, in Scripture. You may not believe that at face value, but I'll tell you this. What you've earned or what you've brought to the table or what legacy you have created by way of your investment in this church or your community or your family, it means rags. It is trash in comparison to the grace that you need in order for you to have eternity with your maker. You realize that, right? And some of us stand very proud on what we've brought to the table. And I'll tell you this much, you're just like this man found in the tombs. You've got nothing. You are hopeless. You are desperate. And you are without reasonable cause for any interest in resurrecting or saving. But there is a Savior determined to find you. And he has found you. And for some of you, it's been decades since you were found and we've forgotten what it looks like to be associated with the least of these. And Jesus says, 
I want you to remember what it was like to be down and out, rock bottom, without hope, because I need you to be a part of this story. I want to use our time together to bring every book back to the bookshelf, to bring every son and every daughter back to the family house. And somehow we've determined that we sit at a better position in the narrative than the one that was marked out for us, the least of these. Every single one of us is tied up in shackles waiting for a savior. And the thing I wrestle with this morning and the thing I've been wrestling with all all day preaching this sermon is, do I believe that one soul is worth the cost? of 2,000 of anything because it's a great cost to somebody for somebody to be reconciled back to Jesus. Somebody has to pay the price. Jesus paid the ultimate price, but now we're engaged in the story. So do do we flinch when something costs us? I flinched so hard when, when the cost of being here was, was humility and pride sacrificed. But it was worth it because Jesus showed me a picture. The promise, the reward at the end was that we would get a clear picture of who he was if we remained at his side through the storm. What did it cost? Everything. But it's worth it because I know the promise I have in a Savior that says, I'll do the resurrecting. I'll do the reconciliation. You just got to be all in. And if you're all in, I'll take us all there. And the response It's so heartbreaking that there's a community that has their savior on their shoreline and they can't handle it and they send them back. Before the boat pushes off, it says this, as they were getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Well, yeah. And he did not permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went all the way He went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This scene is the best rap for me. I love it. It's like a funny episode to a sitcom. Jesus, still 2,000 pigs, ham, belly up, in the water. Everyone's like, Jesus, you got to go. And Jesus goes, you realize what's at stake, right? One, I saved. There's a whole city that could get me if you guys could endure the challenge. They go, nope, we'd rather you go back. The guy in the middle, hey, uh, Peter, thanks for those pants. Jesus, would you mind if I could like, I'd l- I, I'll just, I'll be quiet. I'll sit in the back. I'll wax the boat. I make killer fish tacos. You'll love me. That, I just imagine how awkward that one guy is as they're shoving off and to get the charge from Jesus. Here's your new assignment. Do you remember where you came from? You remember the mess you made? You remember how everybody was disappointed? You remember all that unfinished business that you left? I need you to go back to that because you're different now. I've freed you. I've broken those chains. I have set you free. And you're living with a hope now that is certainly life-changingly different than when you left. And so I need you to go back. 
And I can imagine the wrestling match inside of that guy's heart. Jesus, this is new. These people are new. I can start something fresh. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's probably the easier way. Because now you start to look like us and you have the same hope as us and you've seen the miracle like us. But here's the deal is there are so many people connected to your old community that haven't seen it yet. And I'd rather you go back to them and I'd rather you go back to that place and be a new beacon of light. You have to be it. Why? Because people saw you broken. Because people saw you down and out. Because people saw you addicted. Because people saw you hopeless. Because people saw you without a glimpse of tomorrow. And you can go back and you can say, I have hope. It's different now. Last night was dark, but the sun came up today. And I'll tell you what, Jesus, he's worth it. He made all the difference. Or you can hope that somebody goes back in your place. But the truth of the matter, I think that every time Jesus says, if you endure the awkward and you go through the storm, I promise something incredible on the other side is waiting. And I'll tell you this story as I close. There's a guy that we do church with back at home in San Diego. <clears throat> we started this small church in the loading dock of a grocery store. And it, it has no business being a church. You know where like the semi backs in to unload groceries? It's got like a slant, a couple walls on the side. Not really great, but with a few pop-up tents and uh, a decent amount of effort sweeping and getting all the, the muck off the ground, it can become hallowed ground. And every week for the last two years, we've determined to put church in that place because there are several hundred homeless and below the poverty line, low-income people where church does not make sense to them. We've determined to try to bring a sense of what the body of Jesus looks like together in that place, even if it's just by barbecuing hot dogs every single week. And this guy, Kenny, came to the surface one time, and I loved Kenny because he just jumped in. He started setting chairs up and tearing chairs down. And Kenny went from being a volunteer to a volunteer leader to eventually leading that site with the three other church people that determined that that was going to be their church effort. And one time, Kenny, out of nowhere, just disappeared. He, didn't, he, never, he never came back. And I remember thinking with the team, what happened to Kenny? He was like the best picture of why we do what we do. He, we knew that he went to jail, and we knew that coming out of jail, he didn't have much for resource, and so he was getting at least a good meal while he was at that service, but we saw him week in and week out trying to make something out of the mess that he had found himself in years past. We found out later that Kenny had gotten busted by his parole officer for being at church because Kenny was a, Kenny had a a registered sex felony on his record that restricted him from being at a place of worship because the assumption is there's always going to be kids somewhere there. And what made this story crazy was that the team went and visited Kenny in prison. And we found out where he was in San Diego and his the shame that Kenny carried was, you, you couldn't carry it with 10 men. And that team loved Kenny through the bars for weeks at a time. They would send him sermon notes 
by way of the bulletin, just so that Kenny would get a sense that he still belonged to our community. And what's crazy is that eventually the Lord would do a, re- a work in Kenny, that Kenny would start a ministry in the prison associated with the people that was like his past, where he began to minister to other offenders in prison. So much, in fact, that the effort came back to the church that nobody expected to live or thrive, that they were now starting to pass to one another stories of how God was being faithful. I get chills thinking about it. And eventually, Kenny would get released, and Kenny would come back, and by way of permission of his parole officer, a signature from me every Sunday, and a signature from the site leader, and a signature from his parole officer would say, this is a safe place for Kenny to do church. Eventually, Kenny starts a ministry called Scandalous Grace, and he takes the people that attend that grocery loading dock church, and they write letters to people who are in incarceration saying, there's hope, just stick with Jesus, you'll find it. Kenny is like this guy. He doesn't know why he ended up where he's at, but the Lord is doing a redeeming work in him. And there are people that know Jesus because he determined that despite the storm and the uncertainty, he was gonna keep his eye on him. You and I are like Kenny. You and I are like this guy. The question is, do you see an opportunity to give Jesus glory despite not knowing what's happening in your world? I'm praying you do. I'm praying I do. And here's the best ending to the story, two minutes over. A chapter and a half later, Jesus arrives back on the shoreline at the Decapolis the city where he sent one uncharacteristic, I would never bet the farm on this guy. Jesus says, I want you to go back. I want you to face the challenge. I want you to endure the awkward. I want you to take on your own storm. And at the end of it, if you can tell people that I was merciful and I was, for, I was powerful on your behalf, I know they're gonna anticipate my arrival. And sure enough, A chapter and a half later, they are anticipating Jesus' arrival with all the sick waiting for Jesus to touch them. That's the power that Jesus has when people cling to him despite their circumstance. I'm praying you find that this morning. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you that in the man in Mark chapter five's life, Lord, you reign supreme and you get the glory. Thank you for Kenny and in his life that you reign supreme and by him clinging to you, Lord, that you get the glory. Lord, my prayer is that that would be our story. Here this afternoon that you would get the glory as we lean on you through the uncertainty. Lord, that you would give us a confidence, a swelling desire to lean into you, to crash into you when we don't know what's happening. Lord, that you would get on our level, that you would start with basic things like what's your name and what's going on and how can, how can we make this better? Lord, I pray that we would trust you for that process. Thank you for your grace. We love you so much name I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.